Lord, we're ever aware that without you, we have nothing to say. And without you illuminate, illuminating your word, Lord, it, it just comes out flat. And it comes out of, we're not even sure quite what we read. So I ask you, Lord, to, to open our hearts, be merciful to us, and shine upon your word so that we might see it as it really is. Lord, you, you breathe, you'll breathe the word for our life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Being the first chapter of Luke again, we made it last week through, what, 20-some verses. And we're going to rush through a 12 today. So I intended to get further than that, but <coughs> anyway, it didn't happen. It was good stuff. <laughs> well, last week we read about the angel Gabriel appearing to the priest Zacharias in the holy place, in the temple, where Zacharias was to light the incense on the altar. And, and um, the angel Gabriel told the priest that he should not be afraid, that his prayers had been heard, and that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a son in her old age. And this son was to be named John, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He would also be a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah the prophet. And this was too much for Zacharias. And he expressed doubt. He said, how am I going to know this for certain? And you know what happened? He was stricken mute, unable to speak until the time of the baby John's birth. And we know monumental events are unfolding because God has not spoken for 400 years. And now shortly after this visit to Zacharias, he's going to appear again, the same angel, and this time to Mary. And then later on you will see in the book of Matthew that he appears, and it doesn't say Gabriel, but it just says an angel from the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. So all of a sudden, we've got angels everywhere because of the birth of the Lord and because of the birth of John the Baptist who is preparing the way. And this is what you see throughout Scripture. When monumental events are taking place, all of a sudden you see miracles happening, you see angels appearing because God is getting ready to intervene in a way that he hasn't normally intervened. Look at the first, let's look at verses 26 through 38, and we'll read this as a group, and then look at the individual verses. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. 
the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This time, Gabriel doesn't go to Jerusalem, to the temple there, but to a city called Nazareth. And city is really not a good word to use. It would better be better if it said town or, or a small town or a village, because that's all Nazareth was. And notice that Luke says, a city in Galilee called Nazareth. And he says this because he's writing to Gentiles, and Gentiles are not going to know very much about the geography of Israel. So he has to pinpoint where it is from for them. And he does this many times in his gospel, giving, giving places a definition as far as exactly where they are to a people that are not going to be familiar with the geography of Israel. And Nazareth was a pretty insignificant place. And it wasn't really well thought of by the Jews at all. If you remember Nathan, what Nathaniel said when Philip told him that they'd found the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And evidently this was the common feeling among the Jews that Nazareth was pretty much a no place and uh, with no reputation and nothing good at all about it. And now Gabriel appears to Mary, a young girl, probably 13 to 17 years old. She's a virgin and she's engaged to a descendant of David, the king, to a man named Joseph. Engaged, some versions will say betrothed, was a lot different than the word engaged today. It, means, it meant much more. Engaged then meant everything about being married except living together. The only way to end an engagement was to get a divorce. And Gabriel's visit takes place in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and it sounds so much like God <coughs> in that he speaks, or that in his grace, 
He chooses a girl from a place most Jews rejected. God always seems to do these sort of things. In verse 28, again, it says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. It sounds like Gabriel comes in to Mary's house. You can't know this for sure. He was sent to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin. And then verse 28, it says, and coming in. So we assume it's her house. And he says, the Lord is with you. And sometimes it says favored one or highly favored one. And occasionally some translators say full of grace. And full of grace means Mary has received grace, not that she is able to give it to other people. She was not the source of grace to others. That's why she can say over in verse 47, God, my Savior. God is Mary's Savior, just like he's everybody else's Savior. Mary's quite a contrast of Zacharias in so many ways, in age, gender, marital status. But Gabriel gives her a similar impossible prediction, just like he did Zacharias. Verses 29 through 30 say, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, and hear or bear a son, and you shall name his you shall name him Jesus. So after being surprised and perplexed at being called favored one, she hears the angel say, Don't be afraid which is the same thing Gabriel told to Zacharias when he appeared to him. He said, you have found favor with God. And Mary says, there we go. Favor, like grace, banishes fear of judgment. If God tells you you have found favor in his sight, all of a sudden the fear goes. You're not afraid anymore. But now, after the next few verses, she's not going to be afraid anymore, but she's going to be really confused. Because verses 31 through 33 says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. God's going to break into this world and change everything. Mary, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. He's going to be great. The angel also said John would be great. But now, being great has an entirely extra meaning to it. Because the next phrase for Jesus says, He will be called the Son of the Most High. 
not a prophet of the Most High, but the Son of the Most High. And it says the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Since a son bears his father's qualities, calling a person someone else's son was a way of signifying equality. Here, the angel is telling Mary that her son would be equal to the Most High God. So you can imagine why she's perplexed. Jesus was David's physical descendant through Mary's line. Now, Joseph was also a descendant of David, but obviously he's not related to Joseph. He is, as far as the world is concerned, as an adopted son of Joseph. But truly, he is Mary's son through David. And David's throne was an emblem of the Messianic kingdom, and God will give him this throne. God's been promising this since the book of Genesis, and his kingdom will have no end. And the kingdom that has no end is the kingdom of God. Verse 34 says, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And Mary understands that the angel is not talking about children that she's going to have later on when she's married to Joseph, after she's married. She knows that he means something. I'll probably do it again. She knows that he means, well, where am I? Something miraculous. Of birth without a human father. It seems probable that some people thought Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph and that Jesus was born from fornication, sexual immorality. Sort of a sarcastic suggestion that Jesus was illegitimate. We see this in John 8 41. You know, after Jesus says God is his father, he's talking to the Pharisees and the the scribes and the Jewish leaders. He says, God is his father. And they are doing the deeds of their father, and he means Satan. And they say to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And the inference is there. So the rumor is spread that Jesus is maybe illegitimate. Now, how widespread it is, I don't know. But obviously, some people thought that. And you can imagine how this follows Mary through her whole life and the stigma that it would have created. In Luke 2, verse 35, Jesus' parents take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. So you don't think about that very often, but here he's born in Bethlehem, and eight days later he has to be in Jerusalem, which is not very far away. Nevertheless, in order to follow the law, he has to be circumcised on the eighth day. So they take him to the temple on the eighth day, and there's a man there named Simeon, who the Lord had told that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And Simeon recognizes that the baby Jesus was the person. And he blesses them, the family. And he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will enter even your own soul, Mary, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Sorry. This seems like one example out of many <clears throat> that whomever God gives great blessings to, also he also requires great suffering from. You see it over and over in Scripture. It seems like the more God blesses you, the more is required sufferings that you go through. And that suffering draws them ever closer to him. These things were part of the pain that Mary had to bear all of her life. Because Simeon says, a sword will pierce even your own soul. And you can imagine that any time that they were, the leadership was chastising Jesus, calling him everything but who he was, that some of it's going to be reflected on Mary. Verse 35 says, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the baby, the Holy Child, shall be called the Son of God. The answer Gabriel gives to Mary's, How can this be, for I am a virgin, is like seeing holy ground in the Scripture. It gives us an insight into the greatest events in all of Scripture. The holy, powerful presence of God will overshadow Mary. It's like the cloud that covered the tabernacle when the tent was filled with the glory of God. It was like the cloud that overshadowed those on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Transfiguration is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three accounts, a voice comes out of heaven, out of the cloud, identifying Jesus as God's Son. And here, in 135, we're told that the life that results from the enveloping cloud, the overshadowing, is identified as the Son of God. God's telling us how he became flesh. It's a glorious and it's mysterious occurrence. God's son's going to take on human flesh so that he will be able to pay for the guilt of his people and humanity. Though Christ is fully human, he doesn't partake of man's original corruption because the Holy Spirit is the one that places him in Mary's womb. He's not of Adam's seed, but he's fully human because he came, because he comes from a woman. This has to be true for him to be able to pay for our sins. 
Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's not part of one and part of another. His divine nature gives him unlimited merit because of his obedience, fully obeying God in every way. His human nature allows him to stand in our place as sinful people. We know these things, but we need to be able to understand it to the point that we can explain it to other people when they say, how can this be? We know these things are true, but we don't fully understand them either. <clears throat> First Timothy 3.16 says, great is the mystery of godliness. The great theologians throughout history have stated in one form or another that all we can do at the end of our understanding is stop and worship. And that's where we have to be because God doesn't give us ABC on so many things. He just tell us, tells us that he is. Now, the question, why no rebuke of Mary in verse 34? And she says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Why no rebuke like Zacharias got? The contrast is really pretty evident if you really stop and look at it. Zacharias refused to believe Gabriel. He said, how can I be sure of this? And Gabriel says, look, I'm, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. These are God's words. Zacharias says, how can I be sure of this? Apparently, this was a request from Zacharias for a sign from God. We're told that Zacharias was devout, but he, of all people of faith, should have believed. And even so, the judgment that he got of being mute for a time was not overly severe. Mary, like Zacharias, does not ask, or unlike Zacharias, does not ask for a confirming sign, but only for an understanding of how God will accomplish this wonder. She just wants clarification. She knows that it's true. She accepts it as true, but I don't understand it. So she's just asking more understanding so that she can do exactly what God is saying. So Zacharias was disbelieving, wanting evidence, while Mary was puzzled and just asked for clarification on how the event would happen. And I think Christians, all of us, often struggle with these two responses to God's voice. Give me proof that what you're saying of what you're saying or help me to understand more fully what you said to me. Remember Job? He was called blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And great calamity and suffering occur in his life. And his friends comfort <clears throat> and then they accuse him. Job maintains his, con his conduct is above reproach 
And that is, righteousness is the issue. In 629, that's what he says. I'm righteous. He said to God, oh, if only I could have him or have an audience with God that I could make my case before him. I'm righteous, God. I don't deserve this. If I could have an audience with God, I could make my case before him. So then we get to Job 38 and beyond, and God answers him, and he gives him asks questions that overwhelm Job. <clears throat> where were you where I laid the, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who enclosed the sea with doors? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? And they go on and they on and on. And you know what happened. Job said, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Seemingly, this is the kind of response Zacharias should have had, but he didn't. Who is Job or we or Zacharias to demand an explanation from God? Clarification? Yes. An explanation? No. The parallel here between Zacharias and Job seems to be that both were unable to speak. God is sovereign, righteous, sufficient, and trustworthy in every situation in life, even in difficult and hard to understand situations. And there are many of those. But we have to know that God is God. 36 through 7, 37 say, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. <clears throat> Evidently, Mary had not yet heard of Elizabeth's experience. And Gabriel now tells Mary that her relative is pregnant in her sixth month. And this has happened even though she was too old. And he says, nothing is impossible with God. This is what God has already done as a sign that everything Gabriel says is true. In the earlier translation of the New American Bible, the New American, or the, not New American Standard, but the American Standard Version, I think it was 1909, this phrase, nothing is impossible with God, with God reads like this. For no word of God shall be void of power. And that's a good way to look at it. No word of God shall be void of power. If God says it, there's power to make it happen automatically. This has to be one of the most reassuring statements in all of Scripture. Nothing is impossible with God. Every word of God is imbued with power. And verse 38 says, Mary says, Behold, the bond slave, of, bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Mary says, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, or handmaiden of the Lord. And a handmaid was the lowest kind of female servant, which shows how much she trusted God. It's not a cringing sort of slavery, but a submission to God that in Old Testament times characterized genuine believers. She says, may it be done to me according to your word. It's hard for us to really understand how heroic this statement was. She's not yet married to Joseph. His reaction to her pregnancy might have been expected to be a strong one. And in Matthew 1.19, it tells us that it was a strong one initially. He was thinking of divorcing her until an angel appeared to him in a dream and says, the child is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The death penalty for adultery, though it was rarely executed, was still on the books. So she could have been killed for this. And she couldn't be sure, or how could, you know, she was, how could she be sure that she wouldn't have to suffer and perhaps even die? And she couldn't. But she recognized the will of God and she accepted it. And next, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. I think two important doctrines that come out of this that we need to recognize and to be sure that we have a, a grasp of firmly the incarnation and the virgin birth. <coughs> the incarnation, of course, it means God in, in human form. God taking on means in the flesh. And it refers to the supernatural act of God by the Holy Spirit where the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, took into union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. And as a result of that, the Son of God became the God-man forever. <clears throat> John 1.14 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John, 1 John, 4.2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And in Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, satisfied by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, 
taken up in glory, and many other scriptures. So the doctrine of the incarnation means that the eternal pre-existent Son of God became human in the person of Jesus. He didn't become two persons. That's heresies that were dealt with back in the fourth century. When Jesus refers to himself, he doesn't say we or us or our. He says I, me or my. He's the God-man, one person who took human nature into union with his divine nature. One person with two natures, no blending of natures. He's all that God is in all his perfections and all that humans are except sin. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. You cannot separate the doctrine of incarnation from the doctrine of the Trinity. They go together like hand in glove. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that the man, Jesus, is truly divine. The incarnation declares that the divine Jesus is truly human. The um, doctrine of the virgin birth was pretty much universally accepted as true without any controversy until the 19th century when the higher critics took over so much of the thought pattern of the world. And um, they said crazy things that made no sense, but were accepted by a lot of people. They said that, um, they said that the doctrine of virgin birth was taught in only two of the four gospels, so it must be optional. And the Apostle Paul, they argued, did not mention it in his, in, the, in, in his sermons and acts, so he must not have believed it. And besides all that, the critics argued, argued the doctrine is just so supernatural. So their aim to start with was to get rid of everything supernatural in the scripture. So do you have to believe in the virgin birth to be a true Christian? I think the answer to that is if you're a new believer and you don't yet know the Bible, then you, may, you won't know these things perhaps. But the real question is, can a Christian, once aware of what the Bible teaches, reject the birth, virgin birth? And I think the answer is absolutely not. Because if you do, what you're saying is that scripture that clearly says the virgin birth is, you're saying it is not. And once you go down the road of saying that's not, then you have the option of saying whatever else in Scripture is not. So it's what you believe, not what Scripture says. Well, how would so Jesus be fully God if it wasn't the virgin birth? No. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous what people come up with. I don't understand it myself. It makes so sense because everything that God does is supernatural. Um, you know, it's fitting that Jesus came in a miraculous way because he left in a miraculous way. He left 
in a resurrection and an ascension that was truly miraculous. So it's fitting that he would come in the same way. If you just if you discount one, you've got to discount all of it because they all go together. You know, even if the, the virgin birth is only in one biblical passage, that ought to be sufficient. No, there's no, no critique that says it has to be said in two places or five places or 12 places before you believe it because every word of God is inspired. One theologian says, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible and there is in, there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. So I just wanted to mention that these are two things, two doctrines that come out of reading these verses. We need to be aware of what we read and what may come out of it so that we understand it completely. So let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would enlighten our minds and help us to see what we're reading and understand what we're reading and look beyond, Lord, the, the simple wording to see what else is there, to see what else it means, Lord, coming from the people you've anointed by the words that you've caused to be there through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for, for being our God and our King and the one that has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. In Jesus' name, amen.